never forsake you. Um, we're in chapter 23, but we're going to do a little catching up where we have left off. See what we get out of this. Acts chapter 23 is where we find ourselves. Again, the title of the message, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Use the body this morning, Lord, to minister to one another as we lift this time up to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's been an interesting little uh, journey, Paul, on his third missionary journey and ending that third missionary journey, he gets to a place where he has a desire to go to Jerusalem for the feast. He... On his way, um, coming out of Ephesus and goes to Miletus. And from Miletus, he sends, this is in Acts 20, if you remember. From Miletus, he sends for the Ephesian elders to come to him. And he conducts a pretty awesome leadership meeting. And he pours his heart out to them. He communicates a lot of different things to them. And from there, he begins to say that the Holy Spirit is testifying that when I go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good. Um, Chains await me, and bad things are going to happen. He tells us uh, through the word, as Luke is writing the book of Acts, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy. I I, want to do what God has called me to do. And so even though I'm getting these warnings... Um, Even though I know that it's going to be difficult, I want to please the Lord. I want to live for the Lord, and I want to do what God has called me to do. And as he continues on, um, he's given another warning in Acts 21, and it was the prophet, I don't have my other Bible that I read out of, where I know where everything is, Uh, Agabus, I think is his name. And, and Agabus takes his belt off and he says, the man that owns this belt, and he ties up his hands and he says, so it's going to be uh, for the man that owns this belt. If you go to Jerusalem, another warning is given. This is what's going to happen to you. And then to him, he tells them, I'm not ready to just be bound. I'm ready to die for Jesus. If that's what has to happen, then that's what has to happen. And the commentators are split. They, 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 they can't discern whether... Paul was supposed to do this, and he was just letting them know that God is warning me just to give me a heads up, and I'm going to do it anyways, or they don't know if Paul was just being stubborn, that the warnings that God was sending were warnings so that he can be alerted not to go. It's like, Paul, don't go. Look at these things that are going to happen, and in spite of the warnings, we see that Paul does go. Well, as he goes, he takes this vow with these seven young um, believers, these Jewish believers, and he's in the temple, and he pays their rite of passage uh, for this uh, vow that they make. And in the midst of that, the Jews in the temple begin to stir up and incite a riot as it relates to Paul. And that's where they grab him, and they basically start to beat him up, The commander is alerted. He sends troops to go and help Paul and basically deliver him out of the hands of these individuals that are beating him and ready to just kill him. And 
that's where we've been on this journey where everywhere Paul goes, there's just a riot. They want to kill him. And so the prophecy comes true. He is being beat. He is suffering and struggling as he goes through this time. Uh, Last week, he stands and gives a defense, and it's like his dream comes true. If I can just talk to the nation of Israel, if, if you would just give me audience with them, I know because of my background, because of where I'm coming from and what I've been through, I know their zeal and I possess that same zeal for my nation, I know if I could just be given the opportunity to be able to share with them, man, I know that God can use me to reach them. And he gets the chance, and he mentions that Jesus and the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection is what he's looking to, and they're okay with that as he's speaking to them, as as they're listening. And then he says, But it was not safe for me to be in Jerusalem, so God led me to the Gentiles. And that was like he just incinerated another fire, like he threw gasoline on the passion of these Jews. And at that point, they want nothing to do with him. And it says they're grabbing at him to rip him apart. They want to tear him limb from limb. And that's where we find Paul. So let's pick it up. At uh, we'll, we'll jump back a little. We're in Acts 23, but let's read verse 30 because we see that the next day takes place after this riotous thing. It says in Acts 22, verse 30, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them So this is the commander, as you see in verse 29. Now, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, that's a pretty hardcore statement. Let's break it down a little bit. He is before the council. He is before the Sanhedrin. The ruling religious supreme court, the council. And notice how he addresses them. He doesn't say men and fathers, honorable leaders, which anybody addressing the council would do. He says men and brethren. Paul, this is the scripture that we get that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He's calling them brothers. I was with you guys. I sat on that very council. I know you guys. You guys know me. I know what you guys do, and I know your zeal. This would be the fifth time that this Sanhedrin would have an opportunity to hear the account of the resurrection of Jesus. Five in the Bible is the number of grace. Interesting. God showing them grace. And he says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's a hardcore statement. I've never done anything in my life that has violated my conscience. Proof that the conscience and obeying the conscience isn't all that's needed to get to heaven. Because what was Paul doing a while back? Actually, it's in Acts chapter 9. He was killing Christians. In good conscience, 
He was making sure that he had letters from the council to be able to make sure that they go to court and that they would be killed in good conscience. He was doing that. And so we need more than our conscience. We need to obey the scriptures. We need to make sure that we have a right understanding of who God is and what he would have us to be doing. And so he says, in good conscience before God until this day, verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Ananias couldn't handle it. Ananias was a corrupt leader, a religious corrupt leader, and he tells the guys, the the guards next to him, strike him on the mouth. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you, you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? You command a religious leader, you're supposed to uphold the law, and you're asking that something be, did, be done to me contrary to the law? That's wrong. Now, Paul is wrong here in his response to him, calling him a whitewashed, what does he call him, a whitewashed wall. If... Whitewash comes from, the tombs would be whitewashed because if you were to walk across a grave as a Jew, uh, you would be defiled. And so they would whitewash them so that everybody would be able to see where they were. And when you're walking through a field, you're walking through a set of trees or whatever, and there were grave sites and you couldn't see them, they would whitewash them so, to make sure that they could see. Jesus would say to the religious leaders back in Matthew chapter 23 that they were whitewashed, they were dead on the inside, but outside they looked clean and pristine, but inside there was nothing going on. And so I guess Paul borrows that phrase, but he's speaking to the leader, and you're not supposed to talk against the leader. Verse 4 says, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Verse 5 says, Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and many believe that it could have been possibly his eyesight. I I, I didn't know that he was the high priest. I mean, I know who the high priest is, but I didn't know that was him. I can't see. So many believe because of that, maybe it was his eyesight. In Galatians, uh, those who were at the church in Galatia would tell Paul, we would give you our eyes if we could. And then at the end of the book of Galatians, he writes, Um, See what big letters I've written to you personally. And so again, because of all of those scriptures, many believe that that thorn in the flesh was his eyesight. It could be, it couldn't, maybe it was something different. But um, right here is one of the scriptures that they use to say that. Now whether uh, Paul couldn't tell who this was or is saying, he's saying that he lived in good conscience up to this point. So you would imagine that He's not lying when he says he doesn't know who this high priest is. And so again, I don't know, maybe he was out of the loop. There could be, I guess, a lot of different explanations for this. The one of his eyesight seems to make, I guess, the best sense. Verse 6 says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And so here's Paul defending, and they want to know, dude, why everywhere you go, there's a riot? 
everywhere you go, there's like people are just in an uproar and they want to kill you. What's going on? He kind of just measures it out. Whoa, we got Pharisees. We got Sadducees. I know the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, angels, spirits. They're the liberal aspect of Judaism. And then we got these Pharisees. They're a little more conservative. They believe in the afterlife. They believe in more than just the five books of Moses and the Old Testament. They believe in angels and things spiritual. So I can probably divide them. And he just tells them, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection done. And then they take over from there, uh, verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud cry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. And so he gets them stirred up and they're fighting amongst themselves and Paul's kind of like just takes a step back. But now they want to reach after Paul and now they're going to try again to pull him limb from limb. Verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so, must also, so you must also bear witness at me, uh, bear, bear witness at Rome. What a word from the Lord this must have been for Paul. Again, put yourself in Paul's place where his desire to see his nation saved, his desire to reject all of these warnings that he had been given up to this point, that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be beat, he's going to be bound, he's going to be abused and all of this. And he says, I, I don't care. I just I want to share with my people. I want to be able to share the truth with them. I know them. I know how they tick. And I know that I'm, if I'm given an opportunity, I can share with them. And for all intents purposes, if you were to read the last three, four chapters, it would look like a failure. It would look like it didn't work out well, like it was anything but success. And yet God, Jesus comes to him in the night and he says, Paul, you did well. You did well, son. Be of good cheer. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're wondering. Maybe you're not sure. But Paul, what you did was faithful to the message that I gave you. You did what I asked you to do in faithfulness. And, and I believe God looks at success in our life very much different than we look at success in our life and the world looks at success in our life. The world looks on and they look for different things. They're looking for certain things and God is just asking us, can you, can you just walk and talk with me through your life? Can you just let me lead you along this path? And I have a message that I want you to proclaim. I want you to, I want you to be a light to people in the world. I want you to be salt, a preservative. I want you to create thirst in the life of people. 
Well, Lord, I've, I've got I've to see multitudes come to you, right? I've got to have a church of 8,000 in order for it to be successful based on the world's definition. And God says, no, I just want you to be faithful, okay? On our very best day, what, what do we do? We sow and we water. That's all we really do. We plant seeds and we water seeds that have been planted. And God brings the increase. God is the one that can save people. We bring Christ to man. We, not, can, we cannot bring man to Christ. We bring Christ to man. And we do that just by living our lives, walking by faith, saying, hey, um, you know, this is where I was and I met Jesus and this is what he's doing for me and I'm just bringing you Christ. Maybe, maybe you can take advantage of that as well. Here's the gospel for you. It's Christ that can bring himself to individuals or bring individuals to himself. But our job is simply to water and to plant. And that's what Paul did. From the world's perspective, failure. From the world's perspective, maybe even stubborn, hard-headed. What are you doing? You're not even listening. All these warnings. But Jesus comes and he says, good job. You testified of me. You were a witness. What does a witness do? Just the facts, right? Tell the truth. Tell the truth of what God is doing in your life to people. Your job, my job, is not to save them. That's God's job. We just tell the truth. We speak the truth. We proclaim the truth. This is where I was. This is where I'm at. This is what he's doing me. He's taking me this place. To God be the glory. It's not as hard as we make it out to be. I think we confuse it. Convoluted is the word I was thinking. I was thinking those words simultaneously, and my brain got in a twisted pretzel. And so Paul is encouraged. Be of good cheer because he was down. He has testified of, of Jesus. And notice, remember what Paul wanted back three, four chapters ago? I want to go to Rome. Jesus tells him right here, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul you're going to go to Rome. Maybe not in the, you know, Carnival Cruise way you thought you were going to go, but we're going to get you to Rome, and we're going to see that take place as we continue to go through. Verse 12 says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Uh-oh. That's, wow, I wonder how God's going to get out of that one because you've got these men who are going to kill Paul, but God said that uh, Jesus told him that he's going to go to Rome and he wanted him to be of good cheer. I don't think it's going to work now anymore, right? I mean, I know that Jesus told him he was going to go to Rome, but look, these guys are coming against him. This situation is not looking good and they're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. They've made a commitment and a vow I guess Jesus was mistaken, right? Because that's how we look at life, right? It's impossible. When, when man comes to the end or, or when we don't have any reason or solution, but other people are coming against this, then, wow, I guess, man. I mean, I know there's that promise in the Bible that God has given you, but it looks so bleak. It looks so scary, Verse 13, now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. 
they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. And so now you see religion coming together with these men who have vowed and banded together. And mind you, they're doing this in the name of religion. Verse 15, now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander, now they're trying to bring in the political machine into it, that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard that their ambush, uh, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So you have these commanders that have taken this vow, or, or these, this group of Jews that have taken this vow, they go to the commander, they're going to bring the religious sect in, they're going to go bring, they're going to tell the, uh, the political sect to bring Paul down again, and they'll be in lying in wait to kill him. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew is within earshot. Somehow he gets word. And so, whoa, whoa, maybe there's a chance, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe Paul can get to Rome as Jesus promised because this little kid just so happens coincidentally to be there hearing this. The plot thickens, verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this, I'm sorry, let's, um, did we read 16? So when Paul's sister's son heard that their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Now think about that relationship that Paul has built with this commander of the centurions. Hey, can you take this, this little, my nephew, can you take my nephew to the, to the leader? I think he's got something that he wants to share with him. Verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Therefore the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one what you have revealed these things to me. And so again, we look, I think, at life at times um, because we're looking at circumstances, we're looking at players, we're looking at the people, we're looking, really we're looking from a horizontal perspective and we think we know what we know and it looks impossible and it looks like an impossibility and it looks like there's no hope and it looks like there's no chance because of all of these entities, these machines that are just so powerful and and well we have a little common sense and we know how life works and we think we've got it figured out but guys i'm here to tell you we don't we don't we don't when we're looking on the horizontal we don't have it figured out when we fail to look up to the vertical when we fail to bring god into our situation and our circumstances when we fail to say god I know it looks bleak. I know it looks bad. But Lord, 
Lord, by faith, I'm going to invite you into this. In fact, Lord, by faith, I'm going to ask you, can you intervene, Lord? Can you do something? Can you help me? Even help me see, Lord, what you see. Because, Lord, your perspective is so different. You see the beginning from the end, the middle. And, Lord, you are weaving things in my life, and you're going to get me to Rome. Because you told me you're going to get me to Rome. But, Lord, if I were to look at this situation, Lord, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless. Forty men have taken a vow to kill Paul. And you look at his nephew. Again, how did his nephew get there? How did his nephew hear this? And we're always looking for the dramatic, right? Where's the angel? The angel of the Lord. And we want to see these big things, right? On a spiritual plane. And God is at work in the very natural, but doing a supernatural work. And we chalk it up to coincidence, as if coincidence were a God. <laughs> Must have been a coincidence that the nephew was there. <laughs> Coinky dinky, I don't know. Coinky dinky, you don't think God orchestrated that before the foundations of the world as out of his mouth came? Paul, you're going to Rome. I'm promising you, Paul, you're going to Rome. And you see right here, and guys, we lack faith. We lack faith when we look at the horizontal and we're just looking at it from man's viewpoint. And God says, guys, I'm way above that. And I'm orchestrating things. And I know it looks bleak. And I know that it looks hopeless and helpless. But can you look to me and trust that I've got it figured out and that I'm working things out for you? In fact, can I give you a promise? Christian, all things are going to work together for good. In your life. What, Lord? No, not this. No way can this work out together for good, God. By faith, can you just take me at my word and trust that all things are going to work together for good in your life? Well, that might work for somebody else, or you don't know how tough this situation is. It's either true or it's not true. God is telling the truth or God is lying. And I often tell people God will not ruin his reputation on you, he's not going to ruin his character on you. All things are working together for good, aren't they? And we might not see it right now. We might not even understand it. Verse 23 goes on to say, and he called, now notice this commander and what he does. I think he goes a little Rambo, but he he goes a little gung-ho. He's got power and authority. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. <laughs> How'd you get 270 dudes together, put, put, put 200 of them on horses, and get some spearmen, yeah, dudes that are carrying you, the big ones. All for one guy. And by the way, go ahead and get him a chariot. Well, maybe not a chariot, but at least a horse. Sit him on a horse so that he can go, you know, one horse-powered vehicle. Verse 24, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, that's his name, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason They accused him. I brought him before their council. 
I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Now that's a political letter because he mentions nothing. (laughs) Yeah, we made the mistake of binding him being a Roman. We were about to beat him. And he said, ah, I'm a Roman citizen. Yeah, none of that is mentioned. But again, it's political. Verse 31, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, He said to him, I will hear when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Paul is protected. These religious leaders are going to come down the next day, uh, five days later. um, And they're going to give their trumped up charges on Paul. And then Paul's going to be able to give his defense. And ultimately, he's going to appeal to Caesar and he's going to go to Rome. And we're going to see all that take place. But take a look at what's taking place here. The title of the message, once again, was, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And guys, our life might not go according to the way that we want it to go. It it might not take the path that we were hoping for or wishing would take place. Paul's heart and his desire was to get in front of this Jewish group these individuals, and that he would be able to share with them the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And in his his mind, he saw it going well. They'll get saved, and Israel will understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And his heart wasn't bad, right? His intentions weren't bad, but God had a different plan. God had something else in mind. And it's not that God didn't desire that the nation of Israel would get saved, but again, because God can see the beginning from the end, he knew that the nation of Israel would reject the Messiah. In fact, it would be prophesied, would it not? And Jesus would proclaim it. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. And so God is, again, over everything, able to see everything. And what we need to walk away with is we have certain desires, and those desires could be good for life. And we may have specific things that we want to see take place, and we're praying about them. But ultimately, we've got to let God be God. I was listening to a message, and the pastor shared, if you were to recount your prayers, most of your prayers are telling God what you want him to do in the situation that is at hand. If you were really, truly to evaluate your prayer life and the praise, the prayers that you're lifting up to God, most of those prayers are spent on telling God what to do. And is that faith? What, what prayer did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? And that is a prayer of faith. God, I don't, I don't want to go through this. 
he could have said, God, um, I see this road that's ahead of me, and I don't want it. I don't want this. I'm asking you to take it away. I'm asking you to, to deliver me from this path that I can see clearly where I'm headed. And God, I'm asking you to take this cup from me. But nevertheless, if there's no other way, not my will, but thy will be done. That is a prayer of faith. That's what walking by faith looks like. Lord, you see better than me. Lord, you have a perspective. You want to get me from here to the next step. And you know how best that's going to look. And Lord, you're good. You've proven your goodness to me. The cross demonstrated that. You gave me your very best. So by faith, I've got to trust and take in, man, you've already proven yourself, Lord. And you haven't stopped loving me. And yeah, you know what? This path, this road is difficult. But Lord, I don't want to command you. I'll, I'll request, I'll ask, I'll petition, but Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. I want your will, Lord. Your will is so much better. Your will is so much greater. And yeah, I may have to go through difficulty and I may have to be uncomfortable and I may have to crucify this flesh and the self-life and all of those things. But Lord, your will be done for your glory. Can I be simply your child saying, Lord, you do what you desire to do and I will just give you the honor, the praise, and the glory for what you desire to do. I think if we prayed like that, we might see different things take place in our lives because I think we're kicking and screaming and this is what I see, kicking and screaming all along the way. I don't like where I'm at in life right now. I was sharing earlier this morning. I don't like where I'm at, but I'm hopeful and I'm joyful in the fact that I know that God is doing something that's bigger than me and bigger than my life. And can I be available to God? Because that's all I am right now. All I am, I feel defeated. My, my emotions, for whatever reason, I'm not a big emotional guy, but my emotions right now are getting the best of me. And there's warfare that's taking place in my life. And can I just, in spite of emotions, and regardless of the warfare, can I just say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out. You ever see wrestlers and you get them in a lock grip where their bone's about to break? <laughs> Jesus, I'm tapping. King, I'm done. You're about to break the bone. What's going on? I'm, I'm at that point where I'm just tapping and I'm just saying, Lord, I don't like it, but I give up. And all I have left when I think about it and as I evaluate it, all I have left is I want to be available for you, Jesus. That's all I want to be. I just want to be available. I want to pour into people's lives. I want to see people come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your marvelous light. And I got nothing. I got nothing, Lord. I got nothing left. I, I got no wit. I got no jokes. I, I got nothing. I'm just, I'm tapping out, Lord. But until we go home, 
I want to be faithful with my life. And so maybe you're there. Maybe you're at that place. Maybe you're at the end. And I hear the Lord, that's a good place to be, Johnny, at the end. Because when you're done is where I begin. When you tap out is where I take over. And you, in the simplicity of saying, Lord, can you do something? Can you just take over from here? Because I'm done. I got nothing to offer. The enemy is relentless, relentless, relentless. But God knows. Is he not on a leash? As you read the book of Job, you see Job go through these difficulties. And what a man of faith to say, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And whatever he wants to do, shall we not from the hand of God receive blessings? Shall we not also expect curses? God's good. And that's the foundations that we need to hold on to. So I encourage you in your prayer life and the requests that are made, give God thanks. Begin to give God thanks because that's what a spirit-filled life looks like. To give God thanks for the trials, for the difficulties, for the confusion, for the not sure, for the not sure of the path and where you're headed, or maybe you are sure and you don't like it. Thank you, Lord, for that broken road that you got me on that's gonna get me to where I need to go. Because when it's all said and done, I look at Paul's life and as I'm evaluating it and I recount it, what I see is Paul is a person and God is his savior. And as much of this vision that Paul has in reaching the world, if you will, Paul is, I mean, God is like more intent on the personal relationship that he has with his son. Now think about that. We're always looking at why life's got to count for something and that's going to be by doing all of these things. And God is like, nah, you do all those things and that's cool, but I'm more intent on the personal relationship with you. Can you talk to me? Can you look to me? Can we just walk and talk throughout your day? It's really what I'm after. I just want to spend time with you. And if these circumstances cause you to get you to talk to me, then I've done a good thing. Because I just wanted to talk to you. I just wanted to hear from you. I just wanted to commune with you. And I care about the things that you care about. And I can help you with those things, but you got to give them to me. And so in the midst of that, I just see God just just wants a personal relationship. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. and Lord, I thank you for just what you're doing in the midst of the fellowship. And Lord, I see hurting people. I see individuals going through difficulties. I see the enemy stirring up confusion. At times, Lord, we don't know which way is up. But Lord, we know that you do. And so, Father, as we go through this together as a family, I pray that we would recognize that we need to go through it individually as well. One-on-one with you, Lord. Looking to you, not to a church, not to a, a body, not to a group of people, but looking to you, Lord. And then when we look to you, Lord, we can bring our best to the church, to the body, to the fellowship. 
and be a blessing to others. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing in these last days. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak to us. And, Lord, I pray that we would hold on to the precious promises that you have declared. Lord, when you say something, we can take it to the bank. We can be assured that it is going to happen. It's going to come to pass. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and pray that we would search the scriptures, Lord, to find those precious promises and hold them dear to our hearts, knowing and trusting that you have this figured out. So thank you, Lord, so much for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.